Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12th episode of Post Poet Pop, coming to you from downtown Louisville, Kentucky, in the Art FM studio. We have a feature presentation today, and it is a first of its kind. Today we are talking to the translator K.M. Kasia of the poetry of stridentism, or estridentismo, an avant-garde literary and political movement founded in Mexico in the earlier part of the 20th century. More specifically, we're featuring the translations of the founder and lead writer of stridentism, that being Manuel Maples Arce. Newly published in 2023 by World Poetry Books is this compendium of Maples Arce's poetry, an avant-garde directory, and his stridentist manifesto. K.M. Kasia, our guest, is the book's sole translator and has been hard at work, in fact, translating a large amount of Latin American left-leaning literary avant-garde movements, and this is the first feature interview they have given on the topic. You may have already heard of Manuel Maples Arce and stridentism if you read the Chilean writer Roberto Bolaño's bestseller, The Savage Detectives. In that novel, many of the members from the stridentist movement were either lightly disguised in name or directly mentioned blending fiction and docuprose, as the work of Bolaño has consistently done. In real life, Roberto Bolaño interviewed Manuel Maples Arce himself, and of course was an avid member of the infrarealist movement from the 1970s and into the 1980s. Fifty or so years after the public and civic engagement of stridentism in Mexico. You will hear K.M. and I discuss their personal path to being a translator, the origins of the Stridentist Poems book, and K.M. will read a few of those poems in English. And of course, as always, there'll be a little musical thematic compliment sprinkled in there. So let's get into it.
were some of the main reasons you chose to translate uh, Mopolis Arce's work into English, but also how the book came into to being? Well, the, the sort of material backstory on the book um, was, you know, I, I was in 2005 and six, I was writing book reviews for a magazine based out of Chicago. It was called Stop Smiling, where I had a really excellent editor named Michael Helke. Uh, and, uh, you know, he would just send me things that he thought were interesting, that he thought I would be interested in. And one day, Amulet by Roberto Bolaño came in the mail. Um, you know, and I, I pretty quickly got re- really interested in, not just in Roberto specifically, but more more accurately in the kind of, like, the, the tradition of leftist poetry in Latin America that Roberto was drawing on for his sources and to sort of, like, talk about his literary point of view um you know and it was particular i was particularly interested in infrarealism um but it you know it quickly turned into this like sort of life lifelong research project for lack of a better term where i was you know just kind of following these threads that were coming up in his books and like i said in the introduction or in the afterward of the book like you know most of the people that i was around at that time i was living in philadelphia you know just about everybody i knew was a writer or a poet in some way and we were all reading these books and like, you know, we all sort of just assumed that, uh, you know, that he was just making this stuff up. Um, and I had enough Spanish to like check it out and discovered that he was not just making it up. The work was interesting to me, like, but when I, like, you know, when I would, it was really difficult to find a lot of this stuff in those days. So when I would finally get my hands on something, you know, I would, the, a lot of it was of extraordinarily high quality. Uh, you know, and I basically became a translator in the first place to do this specific work, like this, this sort of lost tradition of leftist Latin American literature that had like been one of the principal cultural victims of the Cold War in that period. I wrote another essay about it where I say that, you know, like when we're, when Roberto talks about watching a generation walk into the abyss, like that's really what he's talking about is like these these socialist and communist writers from all over Latin America who are avant-gardists who, you know, there's very, there was very little record of and had very little presence in the history of literature in the Spanish language or Latin American literature more specifically before Roberto came along and made it sort of the basis of his fiction and made it like, like, you know, important again uh, for the first time in 20 or 30 years, but just in the act of doing so and of having the kind of success that he had. Where is all the money going? Where do all the money come from? Where is all the money going? Where do all the money come from?
place rc only through bolaño or did you were you already aware i had no idea like my like the savage detectives was, was my introduction like not just to my place specifically but to stridentism as a movement mm-hmm. and to infrarealism itself mm-hmm. uh as a movement and you know when i like you know i had read amulet and then you know i liked it so i went and got the other there were four or five novellas out translated by chris andrews on new directions at that time and i read them all so when Savage Detectives came out in English, I was waiting for it, and, and you know, and we got it right away. And uh, I read it like you know very quickly, like just in the space of a few days. And you know, I just jumped on the internet like super excited at, at all of these new discoveries, and found that the infrarealists were still around, and they had a website, and they had an email address on it. So I just wrote to them, hmm. and I got an email back from from a guy uh, who was associated with the movement. Uh, who had known Roberto at the time in the 70s. Um, and uh, the Edgar Altamirano was his name. And he and I wound up being like very, cl- very tight internet friends over the course of the subsequent 10 years. He's a, a math professor out on the Yucatan Peninsula these wow. days, or at least was at that time. He may be retired now. Inforealism, one of the things that I, for, I really learned quickly was that you know, the presentation of the book, of the, of the movement in Roberto's book was a little bit slanted in Roberto's favor, um, you know, and that he, like he had sort of presented the movement in the book as something that more or less definitively ended with his departure from Mexico. And that, that in fact was not true, that the movement had persisted right up to the present in 2006 or so. Um, you know, like a lot of the people who had been involved with it in the seventies were still around and still writing. Um, and the, the, you know, that they had further sort of attracted a couple of generations of younger writers as well, who had sort of, join the movement in various in various capacities you know and i discovered like this just this that there were a lot of writers involved in that movement of very very high quality like besides roberto and and Mm -hmm. mario santiago who is the was the basis for the character ulysses lima in that book uh who uh, you know english language language readers might know from 
the translations of Cole Heinowitz uh, et al., which are very high quality, kind of just started jumping in. Uh, I was particularly interested in, a, in, a, in an early stage in for realist named Katema Mendez, uh, who was one of the one of the people who never really got a lot of attention in the English-speaking world, but whose work is excellent. Um, the Altamirano brothers, Edgar and Oscar, were excellent. The character known in the English version as Luscious Skin, uh, Spanish was Piel Divina. Uh, they were, in fact, a real person, and that is their name. That is the name they use. Wow. Uh, the last the last time I heard from them, I, I had a little correspondence with them. They were living in Europe at the time and teaching art to children and still writing. So, you know, I found it, that inforealism was like a little bit of a different concern than was presented in the book. And that, you know, led me to more or less just Google everybody who was mentioned in the book. And I mean that I pretty literally. I see. Uh, yeah. You know, right. stridentism is essentially like over as a movement by about 1928 or 29. Mm-hmm. Inforealism doesn't really kick up until 1969 or 70. The early manifestos by Mario and, and Roberto are from like 1970 and 71, if I remember correctly. Arguably, I, you know, I would say that stridentism was, was one of a series of, of forgotten avant-garde groups that were sort of a direct influence on the formation of inforealism. Some of the others being the Nadas, the Nothingists from Colombia, yeah. uh, the Orazero group from Peru, with which Mario was particularly obsessed which is why his last name is Lima in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one, one from Venezuela called Techera Ballena. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, there was a, a sort of a direct inspiration sort of influence or whatever. The character of Cesaria Tenajero in The Savage Detectives is kind of allegorical figure for this like avant-garde work that, that these guys were interested in. And I, you know, I have the impression that in the late 60s and early 70s, they had a very similar experience chasing down all these references and finding out about all this work that I had in the early 2000s, like through their work. Um, but in terms of the aesthetics, uh, you know, I think that they, they have a, the two groups, stridentism and infrarealism, have a lot in common. Do you find similarities or differences or, oh, or yeah. what, what the linkages are? I, I... Well, I think the most overt similarity is uh, just the, like how political the art produced by both movements is and was. Mm-hmm. You know, the inforealism in its heyday, which is, you know, roughly ni- 1970 to about 1980 or 81, um, is a very, very political artistic movement. Uh, it didn't have the direct links to an institutional party that stridentism had. Stridentism was, to some extent, like you, it could probably be argued that it, it, it was kind of a, the cultural wing or one of the cultural wings of the, com- the Mexican Communist Party in that period. You know, and Maples is one of the only people involved in the group who, who never formally joined the party. Um, so, you know, the, the basis in, in the, like the firm basis in left politics is probably the most overt similarity. But there are others as well. You know, I mean, strangism, people who read the book uh, or some of the other stuff that's floating around will see is like, I mean, it's a very, very aggressive avant-garde kind of aesthetics. And that's certainly true of inforealism as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the name of, of, of inforealismo, like that, that infra part is like really important, I think, in understanding like their work. You know, the idea is to not you know it's not about making realistic art it's about making art that is like more real than realistic art you know and digging underneath like the surface level stuff that that the kind of realism that is typical of like mid-century american fiction offers to you know things that are more fundamental you know if you will more radical than yeah than it, real, that, realistic art. that part's really interesting to me because you know 
etymologically strident or estridente or stridentus in Latin all kind of mean the same thing, like little cry, shrieking. Or, yeah. And so when I think of modern avant-garde, even, well, literary movements, but art, art groups, art movements as well, surrealism, futurism, situationism, which you mentioned in the, the, the front part of the book, stridentism in reading my place Arce's work I don't I don't get a lot of shrieking or cries or shrill sounds but I do get the position being held as a kind of shrieking on its own yeah I always kind of read it as like a sort of like aggressive and uncompromising sort of stance on the 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 politics and the aesthetics which are not really viewed separately by the group to, to name your poem Bolshevik super poem in five cantos in 1924 is an aggressive thing to do. It'd yeah. be aggressive now too, but at that, at that time in the context of like post-revolutionary Mexico and you know, when the, so like when that book came out, that book came out the year Lenin died. So, you know, like when Sergei Eisenstein was in Mexico shooting the, the stuff that later became que Viva Mexico, mm -hmm. um, you know, he was photo photographed by Edward Weston, who at that time was socializing a lot with people in stridentism. You know, when Weston left Mexico, Tina Madati stayed, uh, and she was also like socially involved with with the stridentists and a lot of her work. When I encounter people who are like encountering like this this complex of sort of communist art from from Mexico in the 1920s for the first time, usually Tina Madati is the only person involved who anybody's heard of, because just because her work became so famous through her, largely through her association with Weston, arguably, which is unfortunate because she is probably the superior photographer, at least in my opinion. Um, but, you know, it's a very like it's a very aggressive, political, overtly communist school school of art that, uh, you know, other people from from Europe or wherever the Soviet Union who would come to Mexico, like they sort of fall into the social circle. And, you know, everybody apparently would have a pretty good time. And there aren't really I didn't find in the record in my research, like, you know, instances of a lot of like arguments between these people. Everybody seemed to be pretty well on the same page. This is the period in communist history where the transition is happening from the collapse of the Second International at the end of the First World War to the Third International. And the Comintern was very active in Mexico and members of stridentism were very active in the Comintern. When you talk about a literary movement being aligned to like a, a political awareness and then you solidify that with like actual political participation, right? there was this much political participation, you know, and you would think we would, we would have understood more about this even in a modern context. And well, I think there's a couple of things that I would say about that. I, I, the first thing that immediately jumps out to me, which is kind of what the, the afterward to the book is about is just how, for lack of a better term, warped a view of this sort of thing we've had historically in the United States for the last 70 or so years. Right. Uh, due to the Cold War and to the, the sort of pervasive anti-communism of American culture. Um, so, you know, we like we've really developed this like a sort of school of thinking about art that, you know, if your art isn't, quote unquote, apolitical, then it's propaganda. And that distinction is just not relevant to something like stridentism. Sergeant will fall, the sergeant's pay, obey, the captain till his die. 
If you are just tuning in, today's episode is featuring the translator and writer K.M. Kasia, who's bringing us the work of stridentist writer Manuel Maples Arce, the founder of the avant-garde movement Stridentism. In that first set, we began things with the band One Day as a Lion with Wild International. In case you forgot that, Zach De La Roca and John Theodore. Nice little throwback. And then we heard a piece of a discussion from K.M. Kasia and I on the origins of the book Stridentist Poems, which is now out on World Poetry Books. Then we heard from Cody Chestnut with Where Is All the Money Going? That was followed up by K.M. Kasia talking to us about Roberto Bolaño and stridentism and uh, the importance of infrarealism as well. And then we heard from The Clash with Inoculated City. We are going to keep our conversation going with K.M. Kasia, and you will hear them read the poem Esas Rosas Electricas. This is Post Poet Pop. Thanks for listening. Those Electric Roses Those electric roses in music cafes That stylize nights with opera poses Languish in death like 64th notes While the orchestra lights aniline on fire And syphilis yawns through stovepipes Mistaken trampoline jump Jewels confused with stars from Ostrom's catalog And forgotten on the shoulder of some daisy Plucked bare by all the French poets, I'm galvanized by one of those pale istics that keep dramatic ears awake without reason, warmed by the memory of Autumn Hospital. And between exotic sips of fermented names, love, a simple dice game, lights, an absurd literary figure, the melodic sketch of an incandescent waltz. The violin crashes in theatrical sobs, and a bird chokes the last few beats. The roof is raining. Garden night flickers. Electric ether batteries, and Paris' last scream is that moon. In the noisy dining room, an academic waiter uncorks ours. Is an electric rose a performer? Is it some sort of lighting? 
Um, and then additionally, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that last couplet that goes, in the noisy dining room, an academic waiter uncorks hours, which seems meditative on all the low-paid wage labor that goes into producing and serving a bottle of wine, perhaps? There's kind of a question in terms of like the images in Maples' work, where they're coming from. Is he seeing things in the, in the world around him and he's just simply sort of poemizing them? Or are these sort of constructed images that are designed to convey some sort of aesthetic idea? Like, um, and, and I wouldn't necessarily be surprised to at some point find a photograph of a cafe in Mexico from this period and find that, like, you know, there was at the time uh, some brand of liquor that was advertising itself with a neon sign in the shape of a rose or something right, like that. Right. But I don't know that. You know, and that's there's a lot of images in, in, in his poems, particularly in this first book in the in the collection. The first book is uh, sort of full of flowers and souls and roses and wings and petals and like all of these kind of like, you know, what I call in the introduction borderline cliches. And, it, you know, I don't really know if like he's taking the, the image of a rose and adding electricity to it, like sort of as like a, an aesthetic exercise or whether he's like incorporating something in his day-to-day life that he or in the material reality that he's seen like into the body of the work. The juxtaposition of a sort of classical poetic cliche like a rose with something that in 1921 would have been very indicative of the way that Mexico was being modernized in a, in a material sense, um, that happens throughout that book. It is like the, arguably the major aspect of the aesthetics in that book. Those portions of Mopolis Arce's work is a futurism, of course, which is interesting because mm-hmm. he seems slightly opposed to that comparison in, in his own manifesto. Those last two lines are, are really, they're really beautiful, but they're really conscious. Yeah, and maybe it's something as pedestrian as like the guy waiting tables is a student and this is how he's paying for college. Yeah. You know, but then, then again, maybe not. Maybe we're reading the like formality of the service style in this particular establishment as metaphorically adjacent to the formality of, of academia, which in the twenties in Mexico, um, I think would have been even more formal than it is now in the United States. You know, there's so many university education has expanded so much in this country in the last 50 or 60 years um, that I think it's a little bit difficult, certainly for me to even really imagine, you know, because academia is something that I've been in this sort of agon with, virtually my entire life um, and it certainly is like you know one of my major things now as a, as a writer and a translator um, in Mexico City and then in Veracruz too there was always a a pretty renowned institution that remained free for most to all people right like you had UNAM and there have been battles for decades over <coughs> cost at UNAM in Mexico City and then you have UNEV in Veracruz which are two places that he lived right um yeah and it's really interesting because i think culturally that's just normal we don't ever think of that in a normal sense in the united states that there would be like a university the caliber of any any good public university and it would just be completely free for 80% of the attendees. And in this way, I think that, you know, that they're like, you know, that's more typical of academic institutions in Europe, for example. And 
you know, the proximity of Mexico to the United States is a little sometimes a little misleading because in, in a lot of ways, particularly like at the, you know, at, at the top of like sort of what is the white society in Mexico, it is a very Europe leaning, Europe focused kind of culture. But it is like, a, you know, one of the challenges with, with this book in the in the act of actually translating it was kind of bridging the 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 distance in time between the, the moment of translation and the moment of composition, because it is basically a hundred years. And I'm not sure that like American literary culture, like that, that is invested in the historical avant-garde has really reckoned with the amount of time that has passed since then in a meaningful way yet. Mm. Um, you know, like to some extent, like, you know, as these, these anniversaries roll around, of these significant moments in avant-garde history, and they are the hundredth anniversary of Duchamp's urinal, for example. You know that that piece in particular, and a lot of historical avant-garde art, remains, you know, perfectly capable of producing controversy along the lines that it produced when it was new in the United States. And I think that says something about the retrograde nature of our like artistic culture. Um, but I think it also speaks to like how well these people uh, did their work a hundred years ago, like how, how accurately they sized up, you know, the culture that they were working in and against and how, how well calculated the moves that they made at that time were.
be catching feelings. Once you see her face, her eyes you'll remember. And she'll have you falling harder than a Sunday in September. Whether in Savannah, Kansas, or in Atlanta. She'll walk in any room, have you raising up your antennas. She can fly you straight to the moon or to the ghettos. Wearing tiny shoes or in flats or in stilettos. Illuminating all that she touches on the sparrow. A modern day drone of her off, me a pharaoh. Classy, sassy, put you in a razzle-dazzle. Her magnetic energy will have you coming home like Lassie. Singing, ooh, shock it, break it. Wireless telegraphy. Stars cast programs over nocturnal silence cliff. In dream, audion tubes, forgotten words are lost. Wireless telegraphy of steps sunk in empty garden shadow. Mercurial moon, clock barks the hour to the four horizons. Solitude is a balcony open to night. Where could this mechanical song's nest be? Memories insomniac antennas wirelessly pick up some frayed farewell signal. Shipwrecked women who got wrong transatlantic directions and voices of help burst open like flowers on sheet music for international anthems. My heart drowns me in distance. Now is a New York jazz band. Synchronous ports are in flower with vice and motor propulsion. Madhouse of Hertz, Marconi, Edison. Brain phonetic shuffles languages, accidental perspective. Ola, a gold star falls in the sea. And you note in your appendix and that this may have been the first poem read over the radio, which, hey, we're on a radio show. I love the line, my heart drowns me in distance. And I wonder how a line like that, how you see that line, my heart drowns me in distance, relative to, to stridentism itself, especially in this poem. Well, I mean, you know, there's this kind of like very typically futurist, like only apparent similarities between Italian futurism and stridentism. Yes. Because that's been the the major critical stick with which the movement has been attacked for its entire history from the very beginning. But there is one of the things that they do share, and they don't share as much as people think, is this like very heavy interest in things like cars and airplanes and electricity and you know all of these things that in 19 the mid 1920s in Mexico were these like 
definitely these harbingers of a new era that was coming to this like now revolutionized society that was prior to the revolution was essentially you know a sort of feudal society in a lot of ways you know it was there was pretty literal serfdom in Mexico prior to the revolution and land reform was a big part of that movement Emiliano Zapata who was you know land reform was one of his major things you know and and if you read Mexican writers of the period like Mar Mariano Azuela and Juan Rulfo um, I translated a story by Juan Rufo called They've Given Us Land that was essentially about land, the land reform movement after the Mexican Revolution and how it played out. You know, in the story, there's four or five people walking to this land that is theirs now that they've never seen before, that they've been given by the revolutionary government. Um, right. And, and they're kind of having conversations. They're not they're not in a car. They're walking there. And I think no. imagematically, you always think of Emiliano Zapata with, you know, he's got his bullets on. He's on a horse like. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I thought about when I was working on this stuff was the the observation of Lenin's that communism in, in the Soviet Union was the electrification, the electrification of the country plus Soviet power. Right. Like the and I think in, in Mexico, like of the time, you know, one of the things that the revolution was fought for was for not just land reform and for like, a, you know, improvement in the, the working and living conditions of, of the peasant class there. But it was also like, you know, the fact that the country now had access to the most advanced technology was was one of the things that the stuff was about. You know, you see that reflected in. In Mayakovsky, you see it in the work of Velimir Klebnikov. Um, it's also a part of the, the sort of the early part of the Italian futurist movement before it starts to take its increasingly fascist bent. Um, there is this idea that, like, you know, the world is changing, you know, and the world is ideated in many ways as the status quo in like 1895, for lack of a better term. You know, it's a it's a pre-modern society where, like, you know. Things like trains even are not that common in outside of the very developed world, like in the United States and, and the United Kingdom, for example. Um, so, you know, it like there is there is a sort of direct relationship between the political stance and the access of the mass of the society to the most advanced technology of the era. Um, you know, it was. To some extent, I think it could be argued that the revolution in Mexico was fought so that, like, nobody would ever have to walk to the, the, the land they had received in the reform again. They could take a train or they could drive a car or something like that. And in, in this country where there's still there is and has always been this like very like big gap between the, the you know, the very you know, a city like New York and a place like rural Mississippi. Um, the, the left cultures of that era. 100 years ago are very much about like bridging that gap and bringing the you know in, in a very classically marxist sense of of, of the term bringing the, the sort of lowest depths of the masses up into the modern era and, and granting them like sort of full citizenship not just politically but in terms of like other like sort of like less obviously political things like their access to modern medicine for example people don't have to walk to the land that they that should be theirs that wasn't theirs really makes that line my heart drowns me in distance stand out a lot more for me left town and no 
是能逃。Section three of City Bolshevik Super Poem in Five Cantos. Afternoon, riddled with windows, floats over telephone wires and machine farewells, hang among the hours, inverted crossbeams. One morning, her marvelous youth shattered in my hands, and forgotten faces sank into empty mirror waters. Oh, the poor Union City, scaffolded in cheers and shouts. The workers are red and yellow. There's a flowering of pistols after trampoline speeches, and some white lover lost in dark corridors of music plucks her petals while the lungs of the wind fester. The couplet yeah. there that really struck me: there's a flowering of pistols after trampoline speeches. One thing that's just kind of a funny anecdote is the word trampoline appears a handful of times in this book. Mm-hmm. And it struck me as symbolic both of childishness or innocence, but also of like gravity, bringing things back down as they want to repel. 
And so then there's this also like this inevitability of utopia as a failure. And I know that situated in this poem, right, this is probably also a good moment to alleviate the notion that uh, the the stridentists wanted to make their own city, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they frankly, them. my own my own opinion of the of the Stratentopolis project is that at least some of them were deadly serious about it. Yeah, yeah, which is it's kind of amazing, really, in its own right. Yeah, and at the time, maybe you still could have done that. I mean, it, like it's an obviously crazy idea, which may have been the appeal to most of them, but like you know, and, and honestly, like. I think if they had all been serious and they had all tried really hard, it still would have failed. But it just sort of hangs in the air around this group. It comes up a lot in the Savage Detectives, as I recall. And, you know, a lot, I've read a lot of academic work from Mexico on the subject, which is like, you know, some of the only really good me- uh, academic work on stridentism that exists. Um, and, you know, it's people talk about this a lot and they study it a lot. And like, you know, no one's really ever probably going to resolve the question of how serious they were. Um, you know, but I think like certainly at least a few of them were, were pretty serious about it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, at least as serious as, yeah, it's a trampoline. (laughs) You get on it, you jump, you got to get off. You got to come back down. I don't know. It's it's, that, that word interests me so much. I don't know any poem out of the who knows thousands that I've read that uses the word trampoline. <laughs> and he he likes well, that I, word. And in this specific instance, the words used to modify the noun speeches, you know, I, yeah. I, I was st- struck it on my first reading. And as I've gone back to the book through the editing of it again, like, you know, the, the, the image in that case seems to me like, you know, when you're at a political rally and somebody gives up, gets up and, you know, it's kind of a subdued mood. And then somebody gets up and they give like a hell of a speech and the crowd gets like super fired up. Yeah. You know, like the metaphor of the trampoline is in the like the increasing of the like the, the possibility of motion that, you know, you can jump higher on a trampoline than you can without one. Lamentations, lamentations, lamentations worldwide. Definitely ain't no, 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 no
trying to cheat us out of our God-given rights. Civil quality education, minimal opportunities available, limited occupations, we are not given a choice. Or oh, given a voice within a political system, pimping gangsta out, wherein the people are the victim sheep being led about. All the followers and patrons of any faith outside the mainstream, all be rated falsely painted as endangering the way things work. And the way things are tonight. I can't believe the things ain't worse. When all the wicked seeds we've sown have grown. And poisoned all the earth. It serves us right. Can't really act surprised when the harvest has no work. The curse that lurks around the corner is the product of our work. Revolution. Wind, apostle of this prohibited hour, a withered epoch shaken by final autumns. Memory predicts the next bird evicted horizons, and flowers pluck keyboard petals. Absolute wind blows against cosmic matter, music, propaganda that floats on balconies, and the landscape abounds in weather vanes. Wind, dictatorship of iron, shakes confederations. O loud, blue crowd that lifts our hearts. Evening, a bloody mutiny in suburbs. Ragged trees beg alms in windows. Factories burn in fire of twilight. And airplanes execute dusk maneuvers in bright sky. Resounding flags will echo the proletarian harangue outside cities. At the party's romantic rally, where we all weep, I harvest hope of seeing her. The station falls to pieces in her hands. Her fainting is farewell's high point. I kiss her memory's photograph, and the terrified train moves away through shadow while I pluck petals from new paths. Soon we'll come to the mountains, O oh, tender geography of our Mexico. Its airplane landscapes, ineffable heights of political economy, factory smoke lost in mists of time, and electric rumors of uprisings. Dark within, soldiers tore people's anthems from their breasts. On the second page of that poem, I think it's the second stanza, there's a really pronounced her. We by harvest hope of seeing her, her fainting is farewell's high point. It made me think that this her um, maybe is a personification of the act of revolution while couched in beloved, of course, but... These days, that, that that's kind of like a hip hop trick, um, but of course, yeah, it, yeah. Well, in his that, time, that famous common song, 
Yeah. No, I mean, well, it is it is a feminine noun in Spanish, revolution. It's la revolution. Yeah, la revolution. Um, and, and I think that, the, the, you know, the opacity that you're seeing is is there and is deliberate and is, you know, largely the substance of what is poetic in the Bolshevik super poem. That happens over and over and over and over again in that poem. And this poem is from a little later, but he sort of that last book in the collection, he, you find Maples reaching backwards to like his bag of tricks that he's developed in the previous two books which are now more fully developed and, and using them to produce discrete lyrics that are not serial poems in the way that like, like uh, Hervé is. Um, and I, you know, I think you see that here. I think the, the, the conflation, the deliberate like conflation and opacity of a woman who he's in, in a sort of perhaps even star-crossed love with and the revolution is like very deliberate and very like very much part of the overt politics of the book, although it is arguably also pretty subtle. You know, if I had a limited amount of time and didn't really feel like somebody was going to take the time to read Urbe in its entirety, which is not super long, but it is, it is of some length. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a quick and dirty two-page lyric poem that contains most of the major ideas and, and sort of aesthetic practices of this period of, of Mathis' work. Um, so like, yeah, for that reason. And it's also like one of, because of its title and because of the way that it addresses like very overtly political phenomenon, like rallies and, and, and various things like that. Um, it sort of grounds, there are other poems in the book that are more overtly like sort of love lyrics and things like that, where the politics are either like not really emphasized or they're like so subtle that like they require footnotes to really explicate. In this poem, you see most of what he's doing in the 1920s as a poet, like pretty, pretty clearly, I think. He's not, he's not the political leader. He's not giving the speech. He's the observer. No. Which is really interesting yeah. because he's obviously the leader of stridentism in a, he's never first person right in the middle of the action. At least up until the point in, in 1928 when, when he left and went to Europe. You know, and it is interesting, and that is definitely something that I've noted myself, that, you know, this person who was, frankly, so concerned in the 20s and afterwards to be seen as the central figure in this movement. Um, he does take this role of an observer in these larger political and revolutionary events that are described in the poems. You know, like he's he's not really even at necessarily at the rally to attend the rally. He's kind of at the rally to find this girl he's into who's going to be there. You know, and uh, it, it is one of the only instances of you know i've read lots of interviews with him like you know from the 20s through the one that that bolaño did with him in the 70s that i referenced in the introduction and like it's the most important thing is you know that this was all maple's idea and he had a plan and it came off perfectly and he's a genius right but in the poems themselves he takes a like a very pat almost a passive role you know what i mean he's not in the poems, he's not a revolutionary leader. He's not even a revolutionary soldier. He's a person who watches the train full of revolutionary soldiers go by. You walk into the room with your pencil in your hand see somebody naked in you you say who is that man you try so hard but you 
don't understand Just what you will say when you get home Because something is happening here But you don't know what it is Do you, Mr. Jones? You raise up your head And you ask, is this where it is? And somebody points to you and says It's his And you say, what's mine? And somebody else says, well, what is? And you say, oh my God, am I here all alone? But something is happening and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? in your ticket and you go watch the geek who immediately walks up to you when he hears you speak and says how does it feel to be such a freak and you say impossible as he hands you a bone Something is happening here But you don't know what it is Do you, Mr. Jones? You have many contacts Among the lumberjacks To get you facts When someone attacks your imagination But nobody has any respect Anyway, they already expect you To all give a check To tax-deductible charity organizations Ah, you've been with the professors And they've all liked your looks With great lawyers you have discussed Lepers and crooks You've been through all of F. Scott Fitzgerald's books You're very well read, it's well known But something is happening here And you don't know what it is Do you, Mr. Jones? He comes up to you and then he kneels He crosses himself and then he clicks his high heels And without further notice he asks you how it feels And he says here is your throat back Thanks for the loan And you know something is happening But you don't know what it is See this one-eyed midget Shouting the word now And you say for what reason And he says how 
And you say, what does this mean? And he screams back, you're a cow. Give me some milk or else go home. And you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Well, you walk into the room like a camel and then you frown. You put your eyes in your pocket and your nose on the ground. There ought to be a law against you coming around. You should be made to wear earphones Cause something is happening And you don't know what it is Do you, Mr. Jones? You read interviews with Herman Litzarzabide and Arqueles Vela and Fermín Revueltas and a lot of these other people. Their their bitterness at the way it ended is, you know, like I said in the, in, in the book, Herman lived to be 100. And yeah. when he was 98 years old, his feelings were still hurt about what happened in, the, in 1928 and 1929 hmm. with the end of You know, it's and, you, you know, you see that in a lot of places, like, you know, a lot of. A lot of the subsequent history of the Soviet Union, like in the 30s and, you know, and, and then again after the war, um, you see that as well. There's always, you know, there's always some element of the revolutionary movement that is dissatisfied with the way that it's turned out. Um, and that's, I, you yeah. know, to a certain extent, I think stridentism kind of comes out of that that aspect of the, the, the way that revolutions kind of develop and specifically the way that the revolution in Mexico sort of tapered off and then ended and the result was the you know like short like i think a year or two after maples left mexico and stridentism fell apart as a movement the the pre came into power and they were in power for 70 years uh and it was you know they were a very sort of like centrist government and in a lot of ways that's kind of started on the left center and tamping down on the radical people to their left and over time in power, kind of drifting to the right gradually over, over the course of decades. Paroxysm. Path of other dreams we leave with evening. Strange adventure strips our leaves in joy of flesh. And my heart fluctuates between her and journey's desolation. In station platform crowds, sobs suddenly erupt. Then, all night beneath my dreams, I listen to their laments, their prayers. The train is an iron gust that roams the landscape, moving everything. I exhaust her memory to the ends of ecstasy, and her eyes' distant colors beat in my chest. Today will pass beside autumn, and the meadows will be yellow. I tremble for her, horizons emptied of ab absence. Tomorrow all will be darkened by her tears, and the coming life is faint as a breeze. Y 
Tuning in, we are featuring the translator KM Kasha today on Post Poet Pop. This is episode 12. You are tuned in to WXOXLP 97.1 FM Louisville and also 100.9 WXND. KM Kasha is the translator of Manuel Maples Arces's Stridentist Poems, newly released from World Poetry Books. In that last set, we heard and started off with KM reading Those Electric Roses, or Esas Rosas Electricas, and then we heard from Janelle Monet with Solange and Roman G. and Arthur with Electric Lady. Then we heard KM read the poem Wireless Telegraphy, or TSH, Telefonía Sin Hilos. That was the first poem read over the radio in Mexico. That is also from Stridentist Poems. Then we heard from Elado Negro with Please Won't Please, that was followed by KM reading section 3 of the Bolshevik super poem in five cantos, or Urbe, super poema. Then we heard from Lyrics Born featuring Latif, the truth speaker, with The Last Trumpet. I want to thank you for listening and supporting Nonprofit Community Radio today. You are definitely getting some points when you head to the good place for that. I also want to thank KM Kasha from the bottom of my heart for speaking with us. And if you want to learn more about their translation work, follow them on Twitter at K-M-C-A-S-C-I-A. That's K-M Kasha on Twitter. And look up World Poetry Books for more on all the great work they're doing. It is comprehensive, to say the least. 
I've got two pieces to round out this episode. You'll hear one more part of my interview with KM, and then we will end the day with a track from Benjamin Booker. Thank you for tuning in. What, and what about the Spanish language? Did you come into that just through school, like, you know, high school, college, or...? I had a year, like, I dropped out of high school after my sophomore year, and uh, I only attended about three months of university at a very, very scammy college in Chicago, which I did not enjoy. So, you know, I, my sophomore year, I had I had to take a language. I picked Spanish, and that, pretty much that whole year, I really only got three A's. One was in Spanish, one was in music theory, and one was in philosophy. Because I wasn't doing a lot of homework during those days. I was a punk rocker, and I was, you know, I was running around being crazy you know so I, like i had like a better foundation in the language than a first year student usually does at the end of that and then you know when i dropped out of school i went immediately into the restaurant business like the same summer and i've been in the restaurant business ever since yeah i mean i started as a dishwasher my first restaurant job was was the third shift dishwasher at a 24-hour diner i'd go in at 11 o'clock at night and i'd get off at seven in the morning um you know but once i like once i was on the other side of that job i was Increasingly around people uh, from Latin America, especially from Mexico, mm. um, a lot of these guys were from families where, you know, like they don't actually even, you know, their, their older relatives don't actually even speak Castilian. They speak various Native American dialects or, or languages. Um, what what the, my friends in, in the kitchen would generally call dialecto, which in many cases would, would turn out to be Nahuatl um, or one of the other sort of prominent indigenous languages from Mesoamerica. And, you know, I just it was sort of sink or swim uh, to some extent. You know, I had to get some some grasp of the language just to be able to, to earn my living because I was really interested in these friends that I had made um, with whom I found, you know, as a, a, you know, a working class person who was basically like raised by my, you know, my parents, of course, but also my grandparents who were both Depression era babies. Um, you know, we had more in common than I think anybody really expected us to have. You know, you're like, I remember one kid I knew whose name was Angel, um, who was from Morelia. Uh, I worked with him in Chicago, and he had literally walked from Morelia to Chicago. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, over time, I would just pick up vocabulary and grammar and so on and so forth. And, you know, I was not really fluent at that point, but I could kind of perceive that if I put in a little effort, I could get there. Uh, and it, especially if I focused on like sort of building literacy, because it was largely an oral language to me up to that point. Yeah. Um, you know, but so by the time I was 25, I had I'd been in the restaurant business for eight or nine years. And had been speaking Spanish at work, you know, at least half the time, um, you know, and when I moved from dishwasher to cook, that didn't really change at a point where I was like, if I sit down for a year and I like really devote like some serious energy to this, like I can probably achieve literacy. So, you know, I mean, I just like, you know, I developed this routine where at night I would sit down at the kitchen table with whatever book in Spanish I was reading and a dictionary. And I would go through the book really, really slowly. And I would look up every word I didn't know, you know, over the course of, of a few years, somewhere in there, I started actually making translations, which were quite bad uh, at first. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, it just kind of all started to come together. Uh, and it eventually just sort of got to the point where I just, you know, kind of cleared the bar on it. And, you know, like there were periods of time when I lived in New York where I would go days at a time without speaking English because I was, you know, I lived in a, in a Latin neighborhood. I worked at a, in a restaurant where I was the only Anglophone, native Anglophone speaker in the whole building. 
more or less. You know what I mean? And it really kind of turned my head around because it made me realize that like the United States de facto is a Spanish speaking country. And it, you know, it is possible to learn that language like in one's daily life here um, in a way that I'd never really considered before and which I don't really feel like a lot of people quite realize. The one thing that we really hate is inconvenience. And so one aspect yes. of, of inconvenience is having to learn more than the language that you've really only colloquially picked up on your entire life. Especially in, the, in those days, like, you know, like the, the late 90s and early 2000s was a period where the, the, if you would go into the back of the house, very often everybody back there would be Latin American. Um, you know, and, and there, I worked in a lot of places where I was the only gringo in the kitchen. You know, that went on for years. It's, it's less, that, less the case now for various reasons, one of which is just like the kind of war on quote unquote illegal in, immigration. Really like, you know, I would have had to make an effort not to absorb the language and the culture. Tell me to me now. 